Hi, everyone. It's nice to see you. Good morning. Uh, if we haven't met, my name is Nat. I'm the lead pastor here at Force View. It's just, it's great to be here. Thanks for being here in the building. For those of you watching at home, um, we love you. We miss you. And uh, we're going to dive right in this morning. We've got a lot of ground we want to cover. Um, something I'm getting... I'm not sure what's going on. Let's try this again. I got a light on and it's not muted, so... I need to screw this in a bit more. Check, one, two, anything? Oh, perfect. All right, we'll start that whole thing over again. All right, we're, we're starting off well. I, I, you know, I also realized I misjudged the time. I came up here and I got to stand up here like during the giving liturgy and like act like I'm trying to make myself look busy. Hi, everybody. My name is Nat. <laughs> it's good to be here with you. We'll skip over that. We're going to dump right in. Um, we've been doing a series called Back to the Table. And it's been a series where we have been focusing on the communion table and what that means for us as, as a community of followers of Jesus. How does this meal, how does this, this ritual, this practice that we are committed to doing every single week, how does that shape us and what does that mean for us? And what does it not simply mean about teaching us about who God is and, and his, his leaning and guiding in our lives, but also what does it mean, how, sh- how does this propel us and shape us as we enter into our world? Uh, and so this morning, actually, there's a lot of ground I want to cover, and so I want to give, I'm just up front, I'm going to give you my outline so that you guys just know this is where we're going, and that like if it is, seems meandering at times, and it might be, um, that, that ultimately this is where we're ultimately starting to land. So I've got an intro, um, which is basically everything I've just done. Uh, then I want to talk about communion essentially as being like an experience of time travel. I know that sounds weird. It'll seem less weird when I get to it. Uh, then we're going to transition into talking about how communion is more than just a ritual, but ultimately that it is a way of life. And we're going to talk about a Greek word called koinonia, which is a word that we've talked about here as a church in the past. And so we're going to look at that. We're going to examine that. And then we're going to begin to explore, okay, so this is what communion is. If it's actually not just a ritual, but if it's a way of life, what does that mean for our daily lives? What does that mean for our life beyond just our church gathering, coming together, taking part in this meal, and then going home? And so what does that mean for the rest of our lives? And specifically, we're going to zero in on our work, or we're going to spend a little bit of time of focusing on jobs, careers, all of those sorts of things. Vocation might be the other word. And then finally, we want to talk about form. What does this look like? What does, if communion is a way of life, what form does that take in our lives? And in there, I've got a great quote from Martin Luther and a bunch of other stuff that's going to be happening. So, um, I should have started that off with spoiler warnings. Um, And for those of you who are like, oh yeah, that totally makes sense. I'm done. You can go. Like, thanks for being here. Um, And for those of you who want to see how any of that fits together, um, yeah, you're welcome to stay. Uh, I want to begin with uh, with my sermon with just a prayer. Uh, This is a prayer from an ancient uh, pastor and preacher whose name was John Chrysostom. And uh, this was a prayer that he would say before every single one of his sermons. And I came across it this week. And... um, Yeah, I want it to be my prayer and our prayer this morning as well. So would you join me in prayer? Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name through Christ our Lord. And so, God, we come to you this morning, uh, and we need to hear from you. 
we want to hear your voice. So I pray that where there is noise, where there is distraction in our hearts and our minds, where there is hard-heartedness and pride, would you remove that so we can hear you and that we would respond both as individuals and as a church community to your calling that you've given to us in Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right, if you've got a Bible, I invite you to open it up to a verse that we've looked at so many times throughout this series, but it's just the best place for us to start. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. The Apostle Paul writes this, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So immediately, when we talk about communion, there is a past element, right? There's a remembering aspect to it. So when we share in this meal together... When we gather together as a church and we take the cup and we take the bread and we eat it and we drink it together, we are looking back to the saving event of Jesus. And we've unpacked this throughout this series. If you want a more in-depth one, this is a liberation meal. This is a Passover meal. This is about God setting his people free. And Jesus grabs a hold of this, this, this celebration that Jewish people would have celebrated during his time, and he, he centers it around himself essentially saying that, yeah, you've heard about this one kind of exodus, this one kind of liberation, but I'm here to give you the ultimate liberation. I have come to set you free. And ultimately that his death on the cross, the blood that's poured out, the body that's broken, is bringing redemption and salvation into the world. That he is setting us free from sin and evil and injustice and death. And so for us, as we gather together and we take part in this meal, there is a reaching back. But at the same time, notice the end of what Paul says here. He talks about proclaiming Jesus' death until he comes. And so at the same time, there's this past reaching back, thinking back, reflecting, remembering. There is also this movement into the future. To, to ultimately, this culmination, this, this conviction that Christians have is that ultimately Christ will return. And in the midst of a, a creation that was created by God and he loved it and he created it good and awesome and made great things, all of it for his glory, he created all of this stuff and yet sin came in and corrupted it and we experienced death and evil and separation from God and that ultimately in Christ's return and with his judgment, everything is going to be restored and made new. It's all going to be in sync with the heart of God, what it was originally intended to be. I think of this. My daughter, her name is Alea. She is six years old, and she loves to play with Lego, which for me is just, as a dad, I'm just like, this is a great thing that we can be doing together. And, and, and yesterday, my daughter comes up to me, and she says, Daddy, which is awesome because often she'll just come up to me and say, Dado, um, that's like her name for me. But she says, Daddy, and I can tell she wants something. Uh, and so she comes up and she says, Daddy. I'm like, what is it, Alea? And she said, would you help me rebuild some of my Lego sets? 
You see, we, we've just gone under, we've moved recently in the last couple months, and all of her Lego sets, they got put into boxes, and uh, we've been unpacking them. We've got her table set up in the basement where she gets to set up her little village, and she's got her hospital, and she's got her, her doctor's office, and she's got her hotel, and, and all these different parts to it. Um, and then there's a whole bunch of other things. And she, basically, there's just kind of the wear and tear of these different Lego sets. Parts have gone to the wrong places. Some of them have just completely collapsed and broken. And so she came to me and she said, Daddy, can you help me put this back together properly? And so the two of us were lying down on the floor trying to figure out, we're looking at the plan. And, and it's, it's really challenging. Like, it's one thing to just build a Lego set when you just got, you know, all the pieces and you're putting it together for the first time. It's another thing when all the pieces have gone in the wrong places and things have broken I mean, that's a perfect image for our world, right? This thing that was created good with intention and it's beautiful and it's amazing and it's gone off the rails and it's broken. And so when we take part in the communion meal, we acknowledge this brokenness, this reality that Jesus Christ died for, this past event, but we also look to the future knowing that Christ is going to come back and that ultimately is going to set everything right. And when we take part in communion, we grab this experience, this event from the past, and we grab this hope and longing for the future, and we bring both of those things into our present. And in this way, communion is so much more than simply a ritual, simply a memorial to something that's happened, because this isn't just about something that's happened in the past. This is about something in the future, and this is about something that we are invited to participate in. If you've got a Bible, turn back a chapter from 11 to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to be looking at verses 14 to 17. Um, but some quick context. The Apostle Paul is writing to a church in the city called Corinth. It is a pagan city. And if you were to go around and travel, if you were just to go there, you would find that there is idolatry happening everywhere. There are idols all over the place. If you walk down the street, you will see idols. If you go into your neighbor's house or into a shop, which were usually actually the same thing, usually your neighbor's, their store would actually be in there, uh, in their homes. And so if you were to go in there, there would be different idols set up. And each home would often have a, its own set of idols or idol. And they would invite you, if you were to come in to visit a friend, to offer a sacrifice to the idol. Or if you were to go into the marketplace, you would be invited to offer a sacrifice to the idol. And these Christians are really wrestling with this reality. They feel like they are constantly under pressure to conform to the way of life that everyone else in their society is living. And they're wrestling with this question, could we just go and offer sacrifices to these idols? Is that really a big deal? Because we know that these gods don't really exist at all. And so the Apostle Paul speaks to this community, and here is what he says. First off, he says, don't, do not compromise. Do not just go along with what your neighbors are doing. Do not just give in to the pressure that's being placed upon you. He says this instead. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. Now, there's a lot going on there, but I simply want to jump into this one aspect that I think is interesting, that Paul's logic drives him to, which is when confronting the question, ah, should we sacrifice to idols? 
Should we participate in these things? Paul says, no, don't do that. And his reasoning is, no, you don't do that because you participate in communion. If you skip ahead just a few verses to verse 21, Paul continues on. He essentially says, you realize that when you are participating in sacrifices to all these gods, even though they don't exist, you are essentially participating with demons. And he says this, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Because for Paul, the table shapes the rest of your life. And if you're offering sacrifices to demons, you are participating with demons. That the, that the act of sacrifices, or, or maybe we'd say communion with these demons, or participation with these demons, is something that shapes all of who you are. It is not just simply a one-off ritual that you perform. Rather, it's something that becomes a part of your entire way of life. Essentially, he's saying this. You can't go back and forth between the tables. It's not just a ritual. It's not just something that happens once a week or whenever you go over to that friend's house. This is about shaping you and forming you in a certain way of life. And he says this, communion is a way of life. Now, the first Christians were probably gathering in each other's homes maybe every single night to share communion together. He's saying it's not just about when you're gathered together and you're taking part in this meal. He says this is about every single hour of the day. Now, the word there that he uses in verse 16, if you just, uh, if you just want to look back at that verse, I'll read it again for you. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Now, the word there that we use or we translate as participation is the word koinonia, and it's a word that's often we use to describe community, or maybe we use it to describe the word fellowship, and it actually carries with it kind of this idea of being linked to someone, business ties to someone, essentially going into business together. Now, the term here that Paul is using, he is talking about this deep connection that happens now sometimes between people but specifically here he is saying that in the act of communion you are linking up with something else so when we think about the word koinonia it is about linking yourself tying yourself to something i mean have you ever gotten just consumed with some sort of project or maybe some sort of task or maybe maybe it's some sort of cause and it's something that just consumes your thoughts and your imagination. You are, like, even when you're not working on it, you're working on it. You're thinking about it. You're imagining. You're problem solving. And it's something that just kind of consumes all of your energy and your excitement and your imagination. And that's the experience of koinonia. It's when your life becomes centered around something, when it becomes your focus. And for Paul, the Apostle Paul, when he talks about sharing in communion, it is not just a ritual for him. Participation in the Lord's Supper is not just about eating and drinking at the table. For him, the table stretches to encompass their entire life. It's joining in with the work that God has already done through Jesus. And it's living in such a way that has the hope and the anticipation that is to come with Christ's return and living that, dragging that into the presence, the present. 
is about their lives being lived in such a way that they were constantly retelling and pointing to what Jesus had done and what Jesus was going to do. So every time they chose to worship Jesus instead of all the other gods that the people around them were worshiping, they were participating in the body and the blood of Jesus. Every time that they chose to declare that Jesus was Lord with both their words and with their actions. Every time that they chose to live with integrity and honesty, even when it came, made things harder or more difficult for their lives. Every time that they chose to love the people who were difficult to love, and every time they chose to sacrificially serve others, knowing that they weren't going to get anything back in return. Every time that they chose to follow the way of Jesus, rather than simply go the way of the world around them, they were participating in God's redemptive mission in the world. So for us, as we share in communion together, it is not just simply about a one-off event that happens once a week on Sunday mornings. For us, this is about a daily, hourly, minute-by-minute thing, and an invitation for us to see the Lord's Supper as us participating in God's redemptive mission in the world. It's joining in. It's participating It's tying yourself and centering your life around what God wants. It's essentially when you take God's mission and you make that your life mission. It's koinia. Now, this brings us back to the table and the bread and the wine that is on the table. And there's something I find deeply fascinating about Jesus' decision to grab a hold of a loaf of bread or a piece of bread and to grab a hold of this cup full of wine. Because of all the different items that were on the table available to him, fruits, vegetables, glasses of water or cups of water, his response is to pick up two things that require or that involve human processing and involvement. I mean, think about it this way. We have bread, which starts off as grain, which is then picked, and then it is uh, beaten down or broken down into flour. Then it's uh, folded and it's made into bread, kneaded into bread. I'm really showing off my knowledge about making bread here. Uh, and then it's put in the oven and it's baked, right? I mean, it, the bread, it take, there's all these different steps that ultimately get it to the table. And wine. I mean, Jesus doesn't pick a bunch of grapes and go, here. Jesus grabs a cup of wine which immediately we go, okay, well, how does that get there? Well, there's grapes that are plucked, and then they're turned into juice, and then they're fermented, which is a complex and nuanced process, and ultimately arrives at the table. For whatever reason, God seems interested in humans being a part of the process for the symbols, the images of his redemptive work in the world. There's this great quote from a pastor named Brian Zond in his book that I think is really worthwhile here. It says, If grain and grape made bread and wine can communicate the body and blood of Christ, this has enormous implications for all legitimate human labor and industry. For there to be the holy sacrament of communion, there must be grain and grape, wheat fields and vineyards, bakers and winemakers. Human labor becomes a sacrament a farmer planting wheat, a vinter tending vines, a miller grinding wheat, a winemaker crushing grapes, a woman breaking bread, a man making wine, a trucker hauling bread, a grocer selling wine. 
This is where we discover the holy mystery that all labor necessary for human flourishing is sacred. All are engaged in work that is just as sacred as the priest or pastor serving communion on Sunday. The Eucharist pulls back the curtain to reveal a sacramental world. Bread and wine, they're the result of us, of humans, taking part in God's good creation. In a way, we might say it's us putting our faithful spin on God's creation. We are participants in God's final product. And the communion meal, the bread that's given and the wine that's poured out, it points us to see our lives in a new light. Your home life, your job, school, hobbies, and leisure. Every part of your life, all of it matters to God. He wants to use it all. All of it, when handed over to God and lived for his purposes, all of it becomes sacred. When it's lived out as a gift to God, when it flows out of communion, when it's in sync with God's heart, or when it's part of an expression of the way of Jesus, it's all part of God's redemptive work in the world. And communion reminds us that for whatever reason, God wanted to include us in his mission and reign in this world. So I want to talk a little bit about jobs specifically, um, because for many of us, actually, well, maybe I'll say it this way. I had an experience with a friend. Uh, this friend is a youth pastor, uh, and we had been kind of in a youth network together, and so we'd interacted with each other a whole bunch. Um, and I knew things were not going well at the church that he was a part of. Um, he was getting really burned out, and so he left. He moved on. And I remember reconnecting with him a couple years later. It was just kind of the catch-up, find out what he was doing. Uh, we, we ended up, and uh, so I was talking with him, and, he, and I just said, hey, so what happened? Did you land at another church? Like, what, what does it look like for you right now? And his response is, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not doing ministry anymore. I've got a normal job. Which part of me was like, wait, are you saying I'm not normal? Like what? Uh, but, but realized what, what he was actually saying, which was that, well, I'm not working for a church anymore. In fact, he, this, he had become a science teacher. So he, he, that was his background. So he said, I've gone back. I've gone back to school, or not school. I've gone back to teaching in a school. I'm teaching science. And there was this part of me that was a little bit sad. One, because I just reflect on the pain and, and the, the challenges that he had faced at his church and, and, and just how burnt out he was. But the bigger part for me that was sad is this dichotomy that existed for him between ministry life and normal life. Because when I think about it, if, if you're living on mission, if you're about living for the redemptive work of God in this world, then, then suddenly everything changes. I mean, suddenly, you're not just a normal teacher. You're a teacher who is teaching them to under, his students to understand and, and to, to, to have a sense of deep sense of awe and wonder at God's marvelous creation. For so many of us, it is easy for us to see this difference happen between, well, this is the, my Jesus part of my life, <laughs> so the church service, that's kind of my ministry life, and then there's just the rest of it. And communion says, no, 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 wait a minute, all of our lives, all of our lives is called to be given, to live out for Jesus. We're participating in the body that was given and the blood that was poured out. And so for us, communion, it doesn't stop when we leave this building on a Sunday morning. 
And it doesn't stop when you enter the office. It doesn't stop when you pull into the school parking lot because all of it matters to God. Uh, and, and I think that sometimes the church has actually been the ultimate one who's been guilty of, of communicating this message. Um, and it's interesting because that was not the intention. I was actually doing some reading about the Eastern Orthodox tradition uh, a few weeks ago. And this one thing that struck me that was really interesting was why the Eastern Orthodox priest wears a white robe while overseeing the service. Now, I just always sort of assumed that this was sort of this hierarchy that was seen as the, the high up person who's up at the front, and so they wear this special robe to represent that higher position. But that's actually not the reason at all. The reason why they would wear that robe is because that same white robe would be worn by each person when they get baptized. And so what the Eastern Orthodox priest does when he would get up to the front of his congregation is when they see him in that robe, it is a reminder that they have been baptized, that they've given their life over to Jesus and that all of their week is to be lived out in service for his mission in the world. Martin Luther has this great quote. Um, we don't quote Martin Luther a lot around here, so this gives me a chance to. Um, and this is uh, what it says. Uh, let's see, where can I find it? I've got it in here somewhere. Mis mixed up my notes. Is it on the, state, or on the screen right now? Well, there we go. A dairymaid can milk cows for the glory of God. If your job is shoveling manure, then do your best and shovel that manure for the glory of God. Some of you are like, yeah, that's a pretty good description of what I do. <laughs> so my job is like, I feel like I'm shoveling manure all the time. And now what that might mean, living for the glory of God, being a part of God's redemptive mission in the world through your workplace, it, it might mean leading your company well. It, it might be making sure that your company is engaged in things that are ethical, that are not out of sync with God's heart. And in some cases, for some people, depending on what your role, what your job, what it looks like, it might just be doing it with a great attitude, being a coworker who loves and cares for others. But all of it matters. Now, I want to go back to verse 16, uh, and I want to look at this just one more time, because not only does this tell us the location, right, essentially that, that, that communion takes place in every aspect of our lives, but it also draws our attention to seeing ourselves as the, in the form that it takes. Verse 16. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? The image that we give in participation, it's, it's about a body that's broken. It's about blood that's poured out. It's not just simply about what we do and what we work towards. It's about the way in which we do it. Are we doing it in a way that is shaped by the way of Jesus, one of sacrificial love, one of putting aside our own comforts, our own personal wants and desires, our own pride? Is it one where we're actually willing to experience it? the body being broken and blood being poured out. Now, we just watched this video about the international church and, and the persecution that they are facing. For them, we're, we're talking the real bodies being broken and real blood being poured out. We're talking about real experiences of death. And while we might not face that kind of risk in our lives right now, a 
At the same time, the calling and the shape that we are invited to as we participate in cross-shaped, sacrificial love, the love that Jesus shows us in communion, well, it's one that requires death. It might not be physical death, but it might be a death to our pride. It might be a death to our bank accounts, at least a little bit of death. It might be death in some of the relationships that we have. It might be death in our reputation and the way that other people see us. I think about how challenging and difficult it can sometimes be. Uh, this quote from uh, a writer named Morgan Scott Peck, he writes this in his book, The Different Drum. He says this, the church likes to refer to itself as the body of Christ, but it, it behaves as though it thought it could be the body of Christ painlessly, as if it could be the body without having to be stretched, almost torn apart, as if it could be the body of Christ without having to carry its own cross without having to hang up on that cross in the agony of conflict, in thinking that it could be thus painlessly the church has made a lie out of the expression, the body of Christ. I mean, how many of us in our commitment to the way of Jesus, in, in our commitment to wanting to live as, as witnesses or, or, of, of God's coming kingdom, of things being made right, how many of us have felt stretched, or even that language being torn apart? I mean, maybe for you, it's about opening up your home to your neighborhood or to others. Or, and there's a death that happens in that experience, right? I mean, there, you love having the people over, but there's this element of, oh, the house is a mess. And, and, and oh, my kids, they act a certain way when these people come over. And you work so hard to kind of maintain this sort of look about yourself. And it's just like, you, you have to die to that. There's a death that you experience. And maybe it's because you're pursuing a certain kind of career, and you know that the best way to do that is to maybe be dishonest, maybe take advantage of people, which is so out of sync with the heart of Jesus. And you need to die, maybe to that dream, realizing I'm not going to be achieved that level of success that I'd always envisioned happening because you want to be a person who lives out of communion, the body given and blood poured out. But here's the amazing thing as we do that, because it's hard, right? It's hard and it's difficult. But the, the video that we watch, it just, just drives this point home in such a profound way. Is that what's coming, what, what we're living for, what we're living for, anticipate, what we are living in anticipation for is so much better. It's so much better. And it's worth it. But the calling for each one of us as followers of Jesus, the invitation that communion reminds us is that as we live in communion with Jesus, as we leave this place, that's not when the meal stops, it's when it actually starts. And we're to live our lives in a way where the body is given and the blood is poured out in sacrificial love for others. Last week, we talked about this weird, strange, disturbing passage in 1 Corinthians 11 where it talks about believers who had taken part in communion in an unworthy manner. And the response, uh, we looked at this and, and, and essentially how some of these people, they had done that and basically they'd gotten sick or they had died. And here is the terrifying but ultimately the most beautiful truth about communion, participating in real communion. 
is that if you do it wrong, it might kill you, but if you do it right, it definitely will. But the hope is, is that what you are giving yourself to and for is so much better. As we transition to the communion table, I want to invite you, if you've got your cup, you can hold it in your hand, in your bread. Let me read this confession, or this time of, lead us in a time of confession. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart, We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Let me read this, and then there's a section for you to read, and then we will take part in communion altogether. The table of bread is now to be made ready. It is the table of company with Jesus and all who love him. It is the table of sharing with the poor of the world with whom Jesus identified himself. It is the table of communion with the earth in which Christ became incarnate. So come to this table, you who have much faith and you who would like to have more. You who have been here often and you who have not been here for a long time. You who have tried to follow Jesus and you who have failed, come. It is Christ who invites us to meet him here. Let's read this together. Loving God, through your goodness, we have this bread and wine to offer, which has come forth from the earth and human hands have made. May we know your presence in the sharing so that we may know your touch and presence in all things. We celebrate the life that Jesus has shared among his community through the centuries and shares with us now, made one in Christ and one with each other. We offer these gifts with them ourselves, a single living act of praise. Amen. The body and blood of Christ given for you, given for us. Let's take and eat together.